You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. I'm pastor here at City Church. It's good to be together as a local church this morning. We're going through the book of Esther. Uh, this is an Old Testament book. We're in the second of three weeks of spending time in this really important book of the Bible that also comes across as a little bit strange uh, because God's name is never mentioned in the book. Like, think about that for a minute. A book of the Bible and God's name is not mentioned. <laughs> And it sounds strange just at first, and the question to ask is, well, is this a coincidence, or is it an accidental oversight? And we're actually going to see that God's name is written on every single page, whether it spells it out directly or not. So first, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. In my prayer, I'm going to be praying for uh, Wesley Gaskins, one of our City Church kids uh, who's up in New York uh, this week with his family uh, to have surgery to remove uh, cancerous tumors uh, from his body. So please, uh, during this week, remember to pray for Wesley as I'm going to do that together as a church family right now. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be here. Uh, We are thankful for the scriptures. What an amazing act of grace that our creator has given us his words. Like we actually know what it is that you have to say to your people. And I ask, starting with myself, that we'll be good stewards of that. We'll pay careful attention to what it is that you have to say and what that means for our lives. We lift up Wesley to you, the great healer. Lord, we ask that he has surgery this week that... You guide those surgeons, and Lord, we just ask in your name that the surgery will work, and they'll be healed, and that he'll be cured of his cancer. Lord, we just ask for your hand upon his life. Father, we lift this up to you and ask that your will be done with him. We know the scriptures tell us uh, that the little children should come to you. So Lord, we just ask that you be with him uh, during this time, for his family as well, for Brandon, Virginia, for his grandparents, uh, each set of them, for all, all that are connected to the Gaskin City group. Lord, we just ask for everyone involved, everyone that's attached to this, that you just give us your peace and, and just show us that we can trust you with all the things in our lives that we doubt, all the things that we wonder. Uh, the book of Esther is such a great help for that, so I'm thankful we can be in that book today. I pray for all the churches in our city as they gather today. May we lift up the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask you to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city. Pray for our missionaries around the world, including the Stewart family, who is now stateside for a season. We ask you to be with them and bless them during their stay here. We ask you to be with Ashlyn as she prepares to go to London. And Lord, that you will use this church to reach Tallahassee for the name of Jesus and to the ends of the earth. You'll keep sending people from here to take your good news to where it needs to be heard. So as you speak through me this morning, we thank you for this great book of Esther, and it's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So the book of Esther, what's happening here is God's people, the Jews, are in captivity. Uh, They're in a foreign land. They have no army. Uh, They have no king. Uh, It seems like God has been absent. They hear some words from prophets, but certain times they're in this situation, like we're in captivity, we're in a land that's not our own. God, where are you? You know, a question you might find yourself asking, just simply as a human being from time to time, the question, God, where are you? Like, where are you in all this? This is happening in my life. Like, God, I believe in you, but where actually are you? Has anyone ever felt like that before or wanted to ask that before? I know I have. So the setting is the king, the Persian king, is having a party, drinking a lot of wine, he's getting drunk, showing off his money, showing off his power, and he goes and summons for his wife, the queen, to come up and basically wants to show her off wants to parade her around, show off her beauty, and she's going, wait, no, no, no. I'm not going to be exploited like that. I'm not going to be taken advantage of like that. And in her courage, she told the king no. And again, in that culture, it's not just that she told her husband no, she told the king no. And there's consequences for that. We actually never hear about her again. 
She just disappears. She loses her spot as the queen. Uh, the local rulers decided that she was unfit due to that action. So the king said, we're going to do this instead. I'm going to go basically send out an all call for all the beautiful women of the land to audition to be the queen. And the woman he chose is said in this book to be the most beautiful woman in all the land. And her name is Esther. But what's interesting is Esther is Jewish. And no one actually knows that in the palace. They don't know the lady they have just named queen, the woman who has just become queen, that she is actually of the people who are in exile. She was adopted by a family member named Mordecai, also a Jew, after her family died. And the situation now is, here are God's people in a state of oppression, but here is one of God's actual people in a very powerful position with extreme access to the king. We see that the king appoints someone named Haman to kind of be a number two, a kind of a powerful ruler of the army. He gives this guy named Haman a lot of power. I'm kind of reviewing from last week just for a minute here. And we see that during this rise to power of Haman, that Mordecai, again, Esther's adopted father here, overheard a plot to kill the king. He's by the gate, and here's some people talking about how they want to assassinate the king, and it happened to be recorded in the historical record. Because king got word, and as a result, these people who were plotting to do that, they sent them down to gallows to be hung. And in the historic record, just documenting history, they recorded, this took place on this day, and Mordecai is the guy who broke the story. So this guy Haman now also wanted to kill all the Jews, because there's an instruction that all the Jews should worship Haman, bow down to him, and Mordecai wouldn't bow down and worship him because he knew that he was Jewish and belonged to God. So he's not going to worship false gods. So Haman became outraged and wanted Mordecai to be hung in the gallows and all the Jewish people to be killed. But here is Mordecai's adopted daughter, Esther, a Jew who has been made queen. So petitions are made for her to advocate for God's people to the king who doesn't even know that she's Jewish. And she's an interesting character. Mike Cosper says this about her in the background, that Esther's heroism is unique in the story of exile. While most heroes during exile are presented as very devout, as zealous for the cause of the Jews of God's people, Esther begins her story as a Jewish girl named Hadassah, and now she's living with a Persian name, a name that honors the ancient Near Eastern goddess Ishtar. Under the care of her cousin who adopted her, Mordecai, a name that honors the pagan god Marduk. I mean, these names alone should set off alarm bells, Cosper said in his analysis. Nehemiah, the prophet, dragged people into the streets and beat them for lesser offenses. So not only do they pass as Persians, they've immersed themselves into the culture, they've blended into Persian culture. Esther willingly collaborates with the palace harem in preparation for her night in bed with the king during the queen auditions and all calls. She's eating their food, drinking their drinks, doing whatever else might be described as preparations. In other words, Esther is no common hero in the Bible. She's not like Daniel the Old Testament character who in Babylonian captivity refused to bow down. He was present with the new culture, but refused to eat their food and to drink their drinks, remaining st steadfast as God's people to the point where he even got thrown into a lion's den 
as punishment for his unwillingness to assimilate into their values and their worldview. Esther here does not seem to be part of the Jewish resistance. And Mordecai urges Esther to intercede for her people. Mordecai appeals to her to go plead on behalf of the Jews. You're the one who lives with the king. You're the queen. And she's reluctant at first. Could have had this hero moment. And she seems unwilling to do it. And we see this in the text. That Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther. He got word back she didn't want to do it. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you were in the king's palace. You think you're really going to be able to keep one foot in the faith and one foot out of the faith for this long? Do you really think you're going to be able to kind of be halfway identified with God's people but not completely? Like eventually, guess what? They're going to come after you too. There's no secrets. They're going to find out that you're Jewish. And just because your status as the queen might be what it is, you're still going to go down eventually with them. I mean, how often do we think that we can sort of have one foot in the door with God and sort of one foot in the door with the world? And perhaps that's what Esther is experiencing here. And he says these famous words, reviewed from last week, that are very, I guess you could say, sort of iconic words in biblical history. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come from the Jewish to the Jewish people from another place. He's trusting here that God's going to keep his promise to his people, even though he doesn't mention God's name. One way or another, we're going to be real delivered. He goes, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. You're going to face this as well. Who knows, he says. Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Maybe all the things that you have experienced that have led you to this point where you had the position as queen has all been God's design to have you in this seat for this moment. Where he's going to use you to carry out the continuation of the God who cannot lie and his promises to his people. So as the world around us applies pressure, trying to remove us away from Christian convictions and belief entirely, even to abandon certain historic sacred principles and doctrines and theological positions, we have to ask whether we really want to be a part of God's family or not. Like, do we identify as the people of God no matter what the cost? Like, are we willing to endure persecution and ridicule for the sake of what God has for us, which is our inheritance in Jesus Christ? And I know, as Americans, when you talk about persecution, it can be easy to sort of hashtag that as first world problems, where our brothers and sisters around the world are being jailed and killed and beaten for their faith right now where our brothers and sisters are meeting in secret on a Sunday so they can still have church as the scriptures command and come together and go, yeah, we're persecuted here, but you only know what you know. So it's easy to dismiss that and go, oh, we have it much easier in our freedoms. We should thank God for the freedoms that we have and not take them lightly, but persecution comes in different forms. Maybe it's marginalization, being excluded from things, social consequences, Maybe things such as being labeled and accused of of things you really aren't simply because you believe certain things to be true, the Bible says. Like, are we willing to be identified as the people of God regardless of what is in front of us? Because if it hasn't come already, the time is coming where a simple hat tip, casual Christianity, liking or admiring Jesus without actually following him isn't going to work anymore in our culture.
You're going to see those who know Jesus get more serious, and you're going to see those who are casual about Jesus drift further away. It happens that way every single time you see a cultural tidal wave come of change into a culture. So Mordecai still, though, in the story, did not bow down or show any fear. He could have made it so easy. Bow down, and we're going to be fine. Just bow down to Haman, and we're going to be okay. But then he's putting God's promises in his hands rather than in God's. So we see Haman was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman says, Queen Esther, he got invited to go to a party, invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join, the, with her, to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. Here he has these great gifts, getting to go to the palace, the only one invited, and because he is so insistent on being worshipped himself, he can't even enjoy the good things. Because he's incomplete, because what he's longing for is nothing more than self-fulfillment and self-actualization and gratification. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends told him, have them build gallows 70 feet tall, 75 feet tall, that's how you deal with that. Go build gallows and hang them. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. That's easy. Just carry out the punishment. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed to hang this guy Mordecai, this Jew, who would not bow down to him. So just when it seems like Esther had resolved the challenge, she had finally agreed to go talk to the king. That's why she was going to bring Mordecai or Haman in. The challenge of the Jews may be finally being resolved Haman is prepared for Mordecai's death before Esther can make her even request to the king. So we see this happen. So here it is, Gallo's being prepared. Mordecai's gonna die and all the Jewish people as a punishment for their failure to bow down and give in. And we see this, that at night, sleep escaped the king. Now the king wasn't losing sleep because Mordecai was sentenced to be hung and he was wrestling with it part of his job was the king was he had people executed all the time the the death penalty was paid out regularly if you didn't do exactly what the king had instructed but here is the king who usually sleeps like a baby has the most comfortable bed everything he wanted in all the world and this night we're told that sleep escaped the king it also wasn't because he forgot to take his melatonin gummies And we see that since the sleep escaped him, he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. Remember that book? The book that in it was included that these guys were trying to kill the king, had a plan, and this Jewish guy who was hanging out by the gate named Mordecai, he's the one who stopped it and saved the king's life. And they recorded it in history. So here's the king, can't go to sleep, so he has someone come read a history book to him. Why would he do that? So he can fall asleep, right, in this context. And they found the written report. Hmm. Coincidence? How Mordecai had informed on Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's units who guarded the entrance and they planned to assassinate King Osiris. The king acquired 
What honor and special recognition has been given to Mordecai for this act? Well, they're going to hang him. The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows. He had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Let's go ask him. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered and the king asked him, what should be done with the man the king wants to honor? Imagine being Haman in that moment. This is like next level, oh crap, when this happens. Like, what do I say here? While Haman built his gallows for Mordecai, King Ahasuerus also had a sleepless night. Indeed, his sleep, we're told, literally fled from him. No reason is given for this. All we're told is that he had a sleepless night and wanted someone to read the history books to him. The important point is that on this very night, his inability to sleep led him to request a reading of the historical chronicle and the passage that happened to be read to him from the history book was Mordecai's act of reporting the assassination attempt planned by the king's attendants. You know how big and thick that book must have been? It's all the history. It's the chronicle being read. If you get assigned it in school, either you watch the movie or get the cliff notes. That type of thick book. I'm not recommending that, by the way. I don't need letters from parents later today. I'm not recommending that. During those days, we're told, Here's the story again, a recap. While Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Finn and Terrace, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Asurus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen, Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. As I said last week from Tim Keller, this helpful quote, his silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not his abandonment. God's name not being mentioned doesn't mean that God isn't here. Just because you can't see it clearly doesn't mean that God has anything other than the plan already worked out and orchestrated. They probably didn't even think anything of it at the moment. But God's silence is not his absence and his hiddenness is not his abandonment. Why? Because he never leaves his people, even when it feels like he does. Esther teaches us that, that in his providence, he's working out the salvation of his people. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. When sin first took place, what did God say? Rather than punishing Adam and Eve as their sins deserved, he said, from your womb, from your offspring, a child is going to be born who is going to reverse the curse of the sin that has taken place. And then God makes a promise to Abraham hundreds of years before Esther and tells Abraham that I am going to make a people, a nation out of you and your family. And it's going to go as far in number as big as the stars in the sky. And here is God working out the salvation of his people it's not a random plan he came up with one day. He was talking to the angels in a huddle, and the others kind of hanging out. And he goes, hey, I got a good idea. What do you all think about this? Let's debate how to like, make all this right. No, from the beginning of time, we are told that God has had a plan to redeem a people for himself. 
It's so important, so important when you read books like Esther to understand that the way God has always worked is that when it comes to salvation is that he has a people for himself that he has chosen by his grace. It's the only way we can actually have confidence in this book that God's not gonna forsake his people. So if we do that in the Old Testament, why would it be different in the New? And it carries out now to who are called the church, the people of God, and God never forsakes his promises to his people. And that people that he would set apart for himself, he would eventually fully redeem and reconcile through that offspring and the descendants of that woman in the Garden of Eden, when a baby would be born in a manger, who would grow up to live a perfect life, die a death that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. And then three days later, rose from the grave. He appeared to over 500 people at one time, many who were still alive when they told the story. He ascended into heaven and one day will come back again and make all things new. Why? Because God keeps his promises to his people. So the Esther story is a reversal of the expected. So is the story of Jesus. No one expected a baby to be born in a manger. They didn't expect a Messiah who wasn't going to ride in on a horse slaughtering all the enemies. See, what appears inevitable is not. Who appears powerful compared to God ultimately is not. In other words, appearances are not what they seem. They're not what they seem. So we see this, that Haman took the garment and the horse, he clothed Mordecai by the king's instructions and paraded him through the city square calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. You might think this is the king humbling Haman, but this is God humbling Haman. That my plans are greater than yours and I will not be mocked. Now here's Haman out having to praise and honor Mordecai rather than actually hang him in the gallows. What a reversal. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for his home, mournful and with his head covered. Made a fool of. And we see the king and Haman, he was invited back, came to feast with Esther the queen. A high honor here. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, and here's her moment. If you have found favor, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request, and spare my people. This is my desire, for my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman, the next words, stood terrified. He was in the room. He's like, that guy. Before the king and queen terrified. Notice that she calls him the adversary and the enemy. You know who our enemy is today as the church? It's not other people. We're told in the scriptures our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not who we're fighting against, but it's the devil. It's important that the devil is actually a real being. 
I know it can be easy to go, well, it's just, he's just an allegory for evil. I, don't believe, I believe there's actually a devil. Like, aren't we too smart for that? Maybe that might be your conclusion, but it's important to know the scriptures make it very clear there is a devil. And the devil's not an allegory or some kind of analogy for something else. Jesus himself believed clearly there was a devil, very clearly. And he also spoke to the devil and addressed the devil and experienced the devil and was tempted by the devil. Again, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm gonna go with the guy who was dead and came back to life three days later. Like, when in doubt. It's important that the devil is a real being and you should not be ashamed to believe that because Jesus didn't just believe that, he knew that to be true. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. And Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life. Here is the adversary under the sovereign hand of God, not ultimately powerful. How comforting to know that God is sovereign over his adversaries. They can't do anything without his permission. Here he is, the most powerful man at that time next to the king, and he's begging the queen you think men begged women for stuff in that culture? This would have been viewed as the most desperate, shameful acts. Maybe because he really was that desperate because he knew what was coming his way. He realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, reclining. A great sign of disrespect to, that to the queen. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? So in doing that also, there's a little more to the story. I'll let your imagination take care of itself of what he's trying to do. There's a violation taking place here. And as soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said in chapter seven, hey, um, I love that. Look at that verse. There's a gallows, 75 feet tall, at Haman's house, it's already been built. Should we go over there? What do I need to bring? Rams or Bengals? <laughs> that he made for Mordecai. Things aren't as they appear, they don't always seem as they seem. Who gave the report that saved the king. How do you know he did that? Because it's recorded in the historical records that I happened to read the night I was having a hard time falling asleep. The king said, hang him on it. The hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Don't miss that detail. Not just the gallows. The gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Then we see that Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet. She wept and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman that the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. Even though Haman was dead, that ruling was still in place, that all the Jews were to be killed. So here's her moment, this such a time as this that God had appointed her for to advocate on behalf of his people to carry out this plan for whatever reason, God and his sovereignty oftentimes uses human beings to carry out his divine will. The king extended the gold scepter towards Esther, which meant she could approach. She got up and stood before the king. She said, if it pleases the king, and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all king's provinces. For how 
could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction on my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther and he was hanged at the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with a royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with a royal signet ring cannot be revoked. God's people, now set up to live and be protected in that certain land, all under God's sovereign hand of moving the pieces that don't make sense to us, even when his name isn't mentioned. We see him all over the story. Like, will you trust the God of history? Will you trust the God of details? Will you trust the personal, relational God who calls you his son and daughter in Christ? See, today, if we can't see God at work in political things that are happening, in medical things that are happening, or even the basic events of our daily lives, we must not conclude that he isn't working. Because he is. And we adopt this approach that it has to look amazing for it to be God. It has to be this sort of wow moment, this, this thing where you're like, wow, that must be God. When we do that and only reserve it for those moments, we miss God's daily faithfulness. Because we look only to extraordinary miracles and not to ordinary providence. Your faith will be strengthened if you look to ordinary actions of God as much as we do the big, huge, extraordinary things from God. Tim Keller says this, when you see one of the 10 plagues, which is what God carried out through Moses to free his people from Egypt, these miraculous things that took place, you know that's God. It's like, wow, look what God has done. He brought these plagues, brought these, this plague upon Egypt. It's amazing what God has done. But when the king gets drunk and starts bragging about the ladies, We never say, wow, there's God at work. Wow, there's God at work. Keller says this, the book of Esther is trying to tell you, don't make that mistake. God is at work. And what's God's ultimate work? His own glory to carry out the promises of redemption he has made to his people. So when you read in a passage like Philippians chapter 1, one, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ. Yes, that's for you personally, but you've got to read that in the whole view of biblical history. That God's been working this out from the beginning to redeem his people. And I know when you hear these kind of things, you might go, man, this is just so typical church stuff. You don't know what's going on in my life. And there's in this room, there's cancer scares, there's people who have experienced trauma, wife's left you, experienced racism in this past week even, maybe this weekend it seems to never ever end, even though you're always, there's some new campaign to tell you it's going to end and it never ends and nobody can really relate. There's just so many things and you're like, let me guess, God's in control, Right? Well, let me guess you're going to tell me. It's in God's hands, right? Like, you're like, is this really the best we got? And you might even sort of believe that a little bit, but it's kind of an eye roll sometimes. You know, it's like when somebody says Godspeed, which I still don't know what that means. I have a seminary degree, I don't know what that means still, but, but Godspeed. Uh, and it's just easy to go, 
you know, you know what's gone on in my life and that's your best thing you got is trust God? Well, here's the thing. Here's why we can trust God. Because God has never broken a promise to us. He has never promised us that that tumor is gonna shrink. He has never promised us that she's gonna come back home. He hasn't promised us that just because they were raised in a Christian home doesn't mean they're gonna follow Jesus in college or as adults. He hasn't promised you're gonna land that job. I'm gonna be really honest for a moment here. I wish he would. Just being human here. I wish he would promise us all those things. Man, wouldn't that be something? He doesn't promise a long life. He doesn't. You know what he promises us? Himself. You know what else he promises us? Forever. Forever. So how easy to go, God, where are you? And that's a normal, I think, we see in the Psalms, like the inspired word of God, people actually asking that question. So don't feel bad or guilty when you ask that question. God, where are you? How long, God? When, when is it? But here's the reality. We have to force our minds to remember that we are so limited in our scope. So limited. I mean, so limited. But we have a sovereign God. Your theology of God and who God is can't be big enough. And if you can trust God to answer your prayers and can trust God to be the one who keeps his promises, can't you trust God with tomorrow? Because when his trust is simply, your trust of him is only linked to circumstances, of course you're gonna be disappointed because you can't see the whole story. And I can't see the whole story. And God might not actually do what he did for Mordecai and go change the situation like a complete flip from like, you're gonna hang on this to now Haman's gonna hang on this, the guy who built it. But the God who did that is the same God who knows you. And he reversed a different kind of situation by someone who was hung on a tree. The situation of our alienation from him because of our disobedience, because of our sin, because of us saying, God, no thanks, I don't want you. I want your stuff instead. And rather than punishing us as our sins deserved, Jesus is punished in our place. And that, should have, that did leave many people going, there it is again. We thought this guy was the one. Read Luke 24. You'll see followers of Jesus after he was died walking down the street and going, I cannot believe we fell for this. We were told our whole lives, God's made promises. He's in control. He's sovereign. He has a people, and look what happened. The Messiah, the one that we left everything to follow, just died. You want to explain that one? Something happened three days later. He rose from the grave. If there was ever a time, in your, if there's ever a time in your life where you're questioning, is God there, you need to look to two different places a manger that was occupied in a Bethlehem stable and a tomb that was empty. 
because both of those are great symbols that God has not forgotten his people. So we need to be Easter folks all the time. Like you need to like wear your lily dress figuratively 24-7. I mean, keep Cadbury eggs on your counter all the time. Put on that seersucker suit all the time figuratively. Because it's Easter, it's the resurrection that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that if he overcame that and he promised this, that when he tells us that one day he's gonna come back and make everything new, we can believe him. So in the meantime, in between time, yes, we're gonna struggle. And yes, there's gonna be suffering. And yes, there's gonna be pain. And yes, some of you are going to have it worse than others and we're not gonna make light of that. But there is an end in sight. But it might not be tomorrow. But it will be one day. So what do we do in the meantime? We remember. We remember the promises of God. We believe that he who began a good work in us really is going to be faithful to complete it. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all things do work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he is, verse 30, that he is predestined and called and justified and that one day he'll glorify. And then verse 31 says, so if God's for us, who can be against us? Why? Because he says, we're more than conquerors in Christ. Then he gives this list. He asks the question, if God's for us, who can be against us? He's talking about our salvation here and God's plan and his sovereignty. Then he goes into this whole list and he goes, can, and he names all the things we're dealing with. Can death, can that do it? Can death separate you from the love of God? Can sickness separate you from the love of God? He's like, no way. Why? Because our God keeps his promises and his love for you can't be revoked. So let's be people who really do believe in the sovereignty of God. Oh, does theology matter? Oh, does it matter? It's not as simple as let's just love God, love people, not worry about the rest. No, let's believe. And let's see what the Bible says so we can all remember together that God not only isn't done with us, he's working right now on your behalf and one day we'll carry to completion in Christ. Following Jesus is the best thing going. It doesn't feel like that sometimes. Why? Because the God in Esther's story is the God of your story. And he's carrying it out to completion through the local church for the glory of his name to the ends of the earth. That gets me more fired up than a Tom Brady Super Bowl, which sadly is not happening this year. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. It reminds us, it points us, it shows us who you are and what you've done. Or may we trust in you. Turn our eyes to you. The scriptures tell us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the one who started it, and the perfecter, the one who carries it through of our faith. Let be the reality of our lives. Forgive our indifferent, shoulder shrug approach to faith in Tallahassee. Lord, I ask you to open people's eyes to see who you truly are, that following you matters. Forgive us when we're casual towards you rather than we believe to be true about you affecting every area of our lives. We're thankful that you really are in every detail. You are sovereign over history. 
that nothing, not the adversary, no one else can go against your plan in terms of it not being carried out as you have willed. So I ask that your sovereignty, that not, that not just be a fact of doctrine for us today, but a reality we take in our hearts and our minds when we walk out these doors. That our lives will be different because we believe to be true about you. So when we see you work out the details in Mordecai's life and Esther and Haman and all the things, Lord, remind us again that the same God who did that it's the same God we're praying to right now. That you love your children. That you provided the way for them back to you through the death of Jesus Christ. Lord, by the Spirit, I ask we'll be convinced of these things and that we'll live our lives loving the one who loved us first. Help us to believe. We're thankful that you are the God who keeps his promises. We lean and depend completely on you. What a joy that is. What a struggle that can be. Lord, help our unbelief. We ask all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.